Amen. Jesus has paid our entire debt. Maybe you've had a car loan that you finished paying. Maybe your mortgage. Or maybe the bank delivered you a document. Paid in full. What a great feeling. What a better reality that all of our sin, the debt for it, was paid in full by Jesus Christ. We're going to continue this morning in our series on Acts 2. We'll have this week and one more. I want you to turn, however, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, I believe, is also very relevant for the establishment of the Lord's table as a regular practice in the Church of the New Testament. And so we're going to focus on that. Uh, Luke chapter 24. We're going to read, it's a narrative. It's a, it's a story of uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they run into Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And they have a conversation with him. And I think... We're going to see a couple of things here. Uh, among them, the breaking of bread. That Jesus blessed the bread and broke it and gave it as a symbol of his sacrifice for us. So let's uh, stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's Holy Word. A little bit longer, I'll try to be quick. Uh, but as we stand and give a certain reverence to God's Holy Word, uh, but more than standing on our feet, kneeling in our hearts before the Lord God who gave us these words. Hear the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew himself near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them said, named Cleopas, he answered him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is mighty, a prophet indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village where they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Hey, stay with us. It's toward evening, the day's far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He immediately vanished from their sight. We'll conclude at that point. We'll consider this text uh, in the end of the sermon. Let's pause now for prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, as we come to this concept of the breaking of bread uh, and devoting ourselves to this task, doing it well, doing it the way you have ordained, I pray, Lord Jesus, that uh, you would um, help us to, to do your table well 
and to get from it the spiritual blessing in food that is attended. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I would like to say maybe you haven't, uh, don't get the church email or uh, weren't aware uh, that Miss Ava on her return trip uh, from Washington, D.C., fell down the escalator backwards. She was going up the up escalator and fell backwards. And she hit her head pretty hard and got a pretty good melon uh, there. But there was no uh, uh, damage or internal injury to her head. But she did break her clavicle. And uh, we were trying to figure out how that happens when you fall. And uh, I deferred to the doctor in the room uh, to try to explain that. But that does, does give us an indication of how to pray. We thank the Lord for Miss Janelle, who was there to cover for uh, this Sunday for Ava, but be in prayer for our sister as she deals with the recovery process now. I'm not even sure how you put a cast on a clavicle. Uh, it, it just it's, it sounds like an awful injury, but be in prayer for our sister as she deals with that. She said her description, I talked to her yesterday, but she felt like she got hit by a truck, and that sounds about right. Uh, so just pray for our sister as she deals with that recovery. Um, for our text this morning, it, it made me think about the Lord's table. In fact, I went to the text because of what it says about the Lord's table. And what I had to reflect on is myself that I don't do repetitive things well. Uh, making the bed. Uh, to me, it's like, you know, if I make the bed once a week, I mean, come on, isn't that good enough? I mean, my wife, every morning, perfectly, gets the pillows right. There's an order of the pillows, where they're supposed to go. Got like... I don't know, 12 pillows on the bed? I need one. It's like, but my wife does it every morning. She's very good. She's very diligent. Uh, reflected even in her work. She's good at repetitive tasks. I'm not. I'm mowing the lawn. I wait till it's like shaggy and the neighbors say something to me about my lawn. It needs mowing. Uh, I just don't do repetitive tasks well. And when I think of something like the Lord's table, it can be a repetitive task. Uh, the scripture says, even, even, even from our text in Acts 2, it seems like they were doing it every week, but 1 Corinthians 11 says, as often as you do it, however frequently you do it, here's the, here's the, here's the way to think of it. And we'll get to 1 Corinthians 11 in a little bit. But the Lord's table is a repetitive task. It's something we do more. I mean, for, imagine if I preached the same sermon text from the Bible every Sunday. It would, it would get... So we read 1 Corinthians 11 as we take the Lord's table and we, we do this same observance, the taking of the bread and the confession of sin and the taking of the wine or juice and, and we pray and we do this however frequently we do it. I will just be honest and admit I've struggled on how to do that well. And so as I came to this text, I was excited because I hoped what would be here would be an indication of how to do the Lord's table well. And I think it is here. Uh, if you look in your bulletin, something I'd like to do is to put the outline in the, the, the uh, bulletin. So if you go to the third page of the inside fold, you'll notice it says Acts 2.42, devoted to the broken, breaking of bread. I'll read the summary statement in a second. But the outline, basically where we're going, is we're going to deal with the breaking of bread from Acts 2. Is Acts 2, when it says we should dev be devoted to the breaking of bread, is that actually talking about the Lord's table? We'll look at the, the, the evidence available there. Uh, because I believe it is talking about the Lord's table, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 11. 
And this is something that, at least in my practice historically, we've covered every single time we observe the Lord's table. And, but what, is, what does Paul say? What instructions does he give about a good way, the, the, the God-given way, to observe the Lord's table? And then, what we're going to look at, having observed the Lord's table, we're going to look at what happened in the disciples' lives in the historical text from Luke 24 that will tell us, in a sense, if we've celebrated the Lord's table well. That these are that, that what we'll see in Luke 24 are some of the things that should happen in our hearts and minds when we serve, when we observe the table well. Um, <laughs> and I did it, and I did it early on. I forgot my outline. So, hold that thought, and I'll be right back. read the summary statement and I've tried to sort of capture our two passages, 1 Corinthians 11 and Luke 24 in them. If you look in your bulletin, to devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, we follow the Lord's instructions to us through Paul. That's 1 Corinthians 11. We'll look at that in a second. And we'll experience Christ as his New Testament disciples did And we'll see that in Luke 24. But I want to jump in, first of all, to Acts 2. Is this really talking about the Lord's table? Or is it just the evening meal? Is it it some special way to eat our, our, our evening dinner together? And I would say from the evidence, it's really about the Lord's table. And there's a couple of reasons for that. There's contextual evidence, there's grammatical evidence... Uh, and then there's also the rest of scripture, which kind of lays it out. I want to begin with the grammatical evidence. If I were to read, if, if we look at uh, Acts chapter 2, if I were to read Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it reads a little bit different if I read it grammatically, what the original Greek actually says. So uh, from Acts 2.42, we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The literal reading of this text is they devoted themselves to dot, 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 the breaking of the bread. That's called the definite article, the. Like, for instance, I could say, go get the car, and that would mean a specific car. Or I could say, go get a car. And we'll drive to, you know, go steal a car, go, go get any car. But if I said, go get the car, maybe I'm talking to my wife. I'm talking about a specific car. The definite article in Greek tells us that there's something very specific being referred to. 
Well, the definite article appears in our text twice. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. And I think what we can take from that is there's something more than just the evening meal here. There's something more than just sitting down together at a table for a meal. It's the breaking of the bread. Beyond that, in 246, it tells us some of what the breaking of the bread, what context it was happening in. 246, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. So if we say this breaking of bread is the Lord's table, they were doing it every day. Now, it doesn't mean everybody was doing it every day, but it means the church was doing it, some parts of the church. Maybe some people could only make Tuesday temple worship, or maybe, you know, whatever. But look at what it says. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread. Basically, they were doing two things. They were going to the temple for the commanded worship, the sacrifices and the feast days and and, and everything that was commanded in temple practice. This is a transitional time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the Old Testament sacrifices are still going on, even in the book of Acts. So they're attending the temple in its worship practice And they were breaking bread in their homes. This is the house church that we talked about a little bit last week. This is kind of how the church started forming. They're going home from temple worship to break the bread together. For the breaking of the bread. And I think what this is telling us contextually is to say they were observing temple worship as they ought to this point in God's revelation. But they were also then going home and observing the Lord's table together. And so I think we can have from context... Um, this, is, this is what's going on. In addition to that, if we look at Acts 2.41, I think what we have in this passage is an acknowledgement of the sacraments that Christ gave his church. Look at 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So baptism and the Lord's table are being practiced in this context of the New Testament church and so we have a sacramental text here. Now, there are other, other faith denominations and, and that observe more sacraments, more than two, some seven. Now, some say marriage is a sacrament. But I think what we have from the scriptures here and other places is really two, baptism and the Lord's table. And so from the context of the passage, I see sacramental significance from what it's saying. Also, if we go to the rest of scripture, if you look at Matthew and Mark and Luke, You've probably heard the term the synoptic gospels. Synoptic, that is to see together. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, take the same view of Jesus' life on earth, a little different than John's. John's focus is to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so John takes text, and and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of take the exact same incidents and, and, and speak to them sin optically with the same view. And John takes a little different look to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke prove, prove his historicity. John proves his divinity. And so together they make a beautiful whole. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke and 1 Corinthians 10 refer to the fact that Jesus blessed the bread and broke it and gave it. And you'll see that when we observe the Lord's table next. You'll see that reality demonstrated in how we observe the table. And so I think uh, 
what we're going to see here and what I believe we've got here is a text that's referring more to more than just the evening meal, more than just any meal, lunch, whatever, of the breaking of the bread. It's actually referring to the Lord's table. When we get to Luke 24 at the end, we'll see that. But I think the sufficient evidence to persuade me anyway, that Acts 2, the breaking of the bread, is talking about the Lord's table. And as I, as I mentioned, for myself, this has been maybe the hardest part of Christianity. It's just, it's a repetitive task. Uh, I'm excited by words. I'm just, a, I'm a, I'm a lit, literal kind of guy. The words of scripture are, are what, you know, the, the, when I get into the Greek or when I see something new and, and how the spirit speaks from the word of God. So when I come to the, something like the table, it seems like, I don't, I don't know, it's, it's something else, it seems something different. What I want to do, I want to help myself, but I want to help all of us observe this table with the greatest possible spiritual benefit that it can give us. I want the table to be a truly holy worship of God, not just something we do. So let's do that by looking at, at 1 Corinthians 11. And this is probably familiar. If you would turn there, I'm just going to pick out the parts of the text that address Paul's fourfold instruction. What Paul said we should be doing, how we should be doing it. You know, if I'm, if I'm going to, uh, well, this chair I'm sitting on, I had to assemble it. And so, you know, I take it out of the box, and it's got all its individual parts, and I kind of had to look at the directions and follow, you know, which screw goes to which hole, what, you know, what, what, how do you assemble it, how do you put it together? Well, the Lord's table is something very similar. Similar. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us the, the, the owner's manual, as it were, the instructions of how to approach the table to make it a truly spiritual benefit. We're going to consider tonight what the larger catechism said. We should feed upon Christ and be nourished by him in the table. And so um, there are handouts, little third of a sheets, that are discussion questions for tonight. Don't get out of here without one of them, deacons, if you would make sure uh, that everybody gets one of those. We're going to look at how do we feed upon Christ in the table? How are we nourished by him? I know when I'm, I'm starving hungry and I eat something and I get some food in my belly, I feel better. Well, so it is with the table as we spiritually feed upon Christ that I, I should come away from it almost with a tangible difference in me. I should be changed and nourished and encouraged spiritually. But let's look at uh, verse 24. Uh, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A friend of mine was at the Jefferson Memorial recently and he took a picture of it his daughters were there and he took a picture of it and what was behind it Jefferson Moral it's an impressive uh, structure and as we think of Thomas Jefferson there's, there's lots of things that he did but we remember him in a historical fashion we remember him as president we remember him in the things that he said we remember him in, in the, the risks that he took in the early formation of this country and while an imperfect man a sinner himself he did a lot of things that that we benefit from this morning. 
And we can remember Thomas Jefferson historically, but Thomas Jefferson didn't, didn't save my life. I, don't, I d- d- didn't, didn't do what Christ did. I'm not nourished by thinking of Thomas Jefferson. I can be thankful. I can remember the historicity of it. But when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, I think more what he's saying is, apply my death to yourself personally. That's the remembrance that we're supposed to. Not the fact that Christ died for somebody. The fact that Christ died for me. He paid my debt. He died for my sins. He hung on the cross in my place. And as we approach the table, we need to, this, is, this is maybe sort of step one of observing the table the Lord's way. Let's put it this way. Even when we fence the table, we say, look, if, if you have not repented and come to faith in Christ, this table isn't for you. Because, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson didn't make a difference for the people in Nigeria or Albania or Australia. He made a difference for the people in America. And so the table is for believers. It's for those whom Jesus died in their place and paid their debt and and, 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 and covered their sins. So the table should be, first of all, a place where we remember that Christ has done this for us. And it ought to be a sense that, what if Christ didn't pay my debt? Then where am I? What am I? I'm outside the family of God. I'm under his wrath still. But he did pay my debt, and so I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. So the very first thing we ought to do with the table is the remembrance part, and that's not just a historical but a personal application. Secondly, we proclaim Christ's death. Look at verse 26. There's actually two things to look at here. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death to each other. Have you ever thought of your participation in the table as talking to the rest of the people in the room saying, I believe this. This is, Jesus is my hope. A hope, and if we had unbelievers in the congregation for the Lord's table, praise God. It's not, the point is not to exclude them from this. The point is for them to hear us say, I'm staking my entire existence on this Jesus. We proclaim the Lord's death to each other. You know, those that are, that are younger, you know, teenagers, children, those that are unbelievers. We proclaim the Lord's death to them so that as they're forming their understanding of who Christ is and the significance of his death, we're celebrating something, we're proclaiming, we're saying, this Jesus is my Jesus because I needed him. Would you consider coming to him? We're proclaiming. We're, 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 we're sending out a message. We're, we're telling people something about him and about us. But verse 26 also has something very interesting. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The table, a right participation in the table ought to be anticipation of the one day when we're eventually going to sit down with Jesus, much as the disciples, the apostles did. We're going to sit with Jesus, quote-unquote, in the same heavenly room, 
in his presence. Hear what Matthew 26 says. Jesus said after he had finished the Passover, he says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord willing, when we observe the the table coming up, Lord willing, I'm going to do a bang-up job of of just presenting Christ and, and observing the table together. But I don't care how good a job I do. We ought to anticipate the day Christ is going to observe his table with us. He's going to break the bread and hand it to us. We believe the scriptures say Jesus is still in his earthly body. He will still be a tangible person. He will physically break the bread and hand us the cup. And he's going to preach the sermon. And he's going to explain the significance of his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And how much better that's going to be. I mean, much as I love R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and, you know, insert your favorite preacher's name here, Jesus is going to do it better. He's really going to preach the sermon. And so we anticipate the Lord's death and anticipate uh, observing the table together. Jesus leading it. Lastly, examining ourselves. And this is probably one of the things we focus on, and it's, and it's reasonable. Verse 20, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This examining ourselves is to see ourselves as God sees us. And there's two parts to that. One, without him, we're sinners, deserving of wrath and hell and judgment. And even as believers, we've broken his holy law. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so even as believers, we violated his law. And we see ourselves that way. But it's not just a morbid introspection, a self-hate, a loathing. It's what 1 John 1.9 says. That if we confess our sins, he is 100% faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll always love when Peter said, hey, Lord, should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus said, depending upon how you read this, this scripture, either 70 times seven or 77 times of the same sin. I want us to observe the table with an absolute assurance that he's going to forgive us and cleanse us. That's the right way. No doubt. I hope to remove all doubt of the forgiveness of sins by Christ at his table. And so these are sort of the right ways to do it. But look again at our summary statement. To devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, we follow the Lord's instructions to us through, through Paul. 1 Corinthians 11. If we just do this in a rote, mechanical manner, we're not going to get any more out of the table than I got out of assembling this chair. I didn't get any sort of spiritual, uh, emotional high out of assembling this chair, other than maybe the fact I was done. And, and you know, But if we'll observe the table the way Christ himself has instructed through us through Paul, we're going to experience what happened to the disciples in Luke 24. And I want to turn there now. This is our our final text, and this is the one I want to concentrate on. This is the one that tells us what happens in the table. 
how we are nourished by the table, how we feed on Christ through the table. And I've read the text to you. It sort of gives us the historical. Verse 30, I'm going to start in the middle, and I'm going to go back to verse 16. Verse 30, when he was at table with him, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. That is the biblical formula for the observance of the Lord's table. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, any place that the table is observed, this is the formula. Bless the bread, he broke it, he handed it to them, and he gave thanks. So I think what's here in Luke 24 is not just Jesus at two disciples' house eating the evening meal. I believe what's here, and hopefully it'll, it'll become very evident from what we're going to see in a second, I believe what's here is the Lord's table. They're observing, and here's the thing, these disciples may not even know it at this moment. Look what it says in in verse 16, Luke Luke 24, 16. They're traveling on the road, verse 13, going to Emmaus, talking with each other, talking, discussing. Jesus draws near in verse 15. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They don't know who they're talking to. They don't know who's in the room with them. They, They don't know who's walking down the road with them. Their eyes were kept. What we'll see, this is, this is a regular biblical formula post-resurrection. Remember Mary, when she encounters Jesus in the gardener? What does she think? What does she, who does she think she's run into? She thinks he's the gardener. Remember the disciples, Peter says, you know what? I'm going fishing. And I, want to, I don't want to be critical of Peter. There's nothing immoral or unspiritual about fishing, if you like to go fishing. But Peter says, you know what? Jesus has died, and I don't know what that means, so I'm just going to go back to what I know. I'm going fishing. And Jesus comes to them on the shore, and it says their eyes were held, and they did not recognize him. And there's a third instance where Jesus sort of goes through the doors without opening them, and he appears in the midst of them, and they think it's a ghost. There's a regular pattern in the New Testament, post-resurrection, of the people who spent three years with Jesus not recognizing him when they encounter him. And so we have it with the two on the road to amaze us. Their eyes are kept. And what that is, that's, that's called a divine passive. Grammatical construction. Their eyes were kept. Somebody was doing this to them. And what the common consensus of, of good biblical scholars is that God himself was holding back their understanding of who they were talking to and the significance of this moment because... He had a divine purpose in mind. So let's look at our text. So, you know, they're having this discussion in verses 15 and 16. And they're saying to this, this guy on the road to Emmaus who just happened to join them, how can you not know what's happened in Jerusalem in the last couple of days? So they kind of give him the backstory. Verse 16, their eyes are kept. Verse 25 through 27, look what happens and look at what doesn't happen. Look at verse 25. Verse, Jesus starts, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's a pretty, you know, right between the eyes kind of statement to make. It's like, don't you get it? You just explained to me all the facts. Don't you understand what their significance is? Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? When we talk about the apostles' doctrine, this is what we're talking about. 
Was it not necessary? Necessary in the sense the Old Testament talked about it, and the Gospels talked about it, and the epistles are going to talk about it. Don't you understand this was the whole plan all along? And so Jesus is, so he begins, verse 27, with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to himself in all things in the scriptures concerning himself. I believe what verse 16 is telling us that even with Christ preaching the sermon, they didn't really get it. Even with Christ saying, chastising them, and saying, man, man how, how can you miss this? It's everywhere. It's, it's what God always has been about. Even with Christ preaching the sermon, they're still blinded, I think verse 16 is telling us. But then look at verse 30. And this is where the table comes in. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. I can't say exactly what it is. And as much as I think how in the past the table has been a struggle for me, not, not so much recently, but over my 55, 56 years, I would say the first 50 of them were a real struggle, the table for me. Because it's, it's this kind of ritual thing that other religions do. That, But this is what I want to happen to me. I observe the Lord's table. I want my eyes opened. I want, I want the aha moment. I want the sermon that I heard the words illustrated in the table. I want the words followed up by a picture. And that's what the table is. It's in remembrance of Christ. It, you show the Lord's death until he comes. That's what the table is doing. It's showing the Lord's death until he comes. It's when he blessed the bread and broke it to their spiritual eyes. And the disciples even say, verse 35, they go back. Jesus disappears out of their sight. They go back, verse 35, they tell everybody about it. Then they told what had happened on the road, how he was known, made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is what the disciples understood happened at the Lord's table, that we, we know him better because of the table observance. And this is how they explain it. Let me, let me take a familiar scripture text. Uh, it's Matthew, I'm trying to see if I've got it. Yeah, Matthew eleven twenty nine. You probably know it. You can turn, I'm going to turn to it because there's an extra verse here I want to read. This is Jesus telling him about himself and what we ought to understand about him. Matthew 11, let's see, verses 28 and 29. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word yoke, we can think of an oxen. And the thing about a yoke is, you have to go wherever whoever you're yoked to goes. When you've got two oxen yoked together. Anybody, anybody ever actually yoked two oxen together? You know the picture, though. An ox can't decide, well, I'm going over here, and oh, I see green grass over here, and I'm going to go over here. 
No, the, the, the oxen kind of have to agree. Uh, we're going somewhere together. This word, Jesus says, my yoke. We're yoked to Christ. It's the idea of him as Lord. One of the words used for Lord in the New Testament is despotos. Anybody hear an English word in there? Despotos. We get our English word despot from it. What a despot is, is somebody with absolute authority that has full right to command whatever we do and can instantly destroy us for disobedience. That's what a despot is. And so when Jesus says, when he calls himself Lord and he talks about his yoke, he's saying in his authority he has every right to demand perfect obedience and to destroy any who don't. But then look what he says. Look at how the table shows us the fullness of Jesus. In my preaching, I ought to convey Christ as the absolute sovereign Lord of the universe. I need to do that. But I also need to conclude with the rest of verses 28-29. Take my yoke and learn of me. That's what the table does. It teaches us of Christ with a picture. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what the table shows us. The absolute Lord of the universe who has every right to despotically demand our obedience instead in the present chose to die for us, suffer in our place, the punishment we deserved, he took. What does the scripture say? I'm gentle. In the table, we see a gentle Savior. We see a loving God. We see a merciful God. His yoke is easy. He doesn't flaunt his authority for the sake of flexing his muscles on us. My burden is light. In the table, we see a Christ pictured who said to me, Mark, you should have died. Instead say, I'm going to die for you. That's how the table gives us a fullness of who Christ is. And so when we look at a scripture like this, we begin to understand the fullness of Christ. It preaches all of who he is, and the table reveals this. And this is why we can preach every text. We can preach Christ in every text of scripture. And I want to illustrate that for you, and I'll, I'll finish the sermon at that point. Look at Psalm 18. And, you know, I just, I sort of picked this one out of the blue, but I, I wanted to, I wanted it to have both sides of the significance. How does the table help me to preach Christ from Psalm 18? I mean, obviously, many things about him are not revealed. Obviously, we don't have the fullness of the Gospels and the Epistles. How do I preach Christ? I take the Gospels and the Epistles, and I tell, I, I take what they explain to me, and I read it back into the Old Testament and understand that the Old Testament was always telling me what the Gospels and the Epistles had said, are saying. Look at Psalm 18. And then we'll make some application. We'll quit. Verses 17 and 18. First of all, read the, read the, 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 the uh, prescript. It's to the choir master. This is supposed to be sung. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord, he sang it to the Lord when, on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies 
in the hand of Saul. A historical reality, Absalom and Saul, and God made David king, as he had promised. He kept, he kept his word, he, he delivered him, he prospered him, he saved his life from certain death in many circumstances, Goliath, you can name them all. But look at Psalm 18, 17, and 18. We can read this historically. And, and let's look at it historically first. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, those who were too mighty for me. He, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. And we can read that in a historical sense of how he was delivered from Saul and he defeated Goliath and God made him king. Or we can read it in light of the Lord's table. The sacrifice of Christ in our place. Let me do that. He rescued me from my strong enemy. Satan, death, and hell. The greatest enemies of all mankind that every human has faced. He rescued me. That's that personal application of the table. He saved my soul from my strong enemy. From Satan, the enemy of your souls, Scripture describes. From death. In Christ, no man dies. We close our eyes in this life and we open them in heaven. Death has... Oh, grave, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? We see that in the table. Keep going. From those who hated me. You've been mocked for Christ? You ever been fired from a job because you held a biblical stand? That seems like hate, but God is sovereign. He'll keep you. He'll protect you. Keep going. They were too mighty for me. Have you ever run into a situation? You know, think, of, think of disease. Nobody gets out of here alive. We're all going to die of something. And when that deathbed moment happens for any one of us, each of us, we can still say, he defeated the one who was too much for me. We see that in the table. It's pictured there. Finish it first. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Know your every hard circumstance because of Christ's death. On the table, the Lord is your support. He's the one who covers you with his wings. He's the one that all calamity and death and Satan and hell must pass through before they can get to us. He's not just my support like tech support. You know, I use my computer all day long. When something blows up, I call tech support. No, he's my active support. He's the one who's keeping it running. He's the one who's always there with us. So these are the ways I think we should observe the Lord's table. Paul's fourfold instruction, we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. But looking for this type of experience where in the table we see something about Christ. He's revealed to us. His grace and his glory are pictured and explained. And even if we take just one little extra thing that we didn't see before. This is what the two on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were opened through the breaking of the bread. That picture, illustration of the words, the word of God, truth. That, that's how it's supposed to come together. So, some application. My first application here is this begins with me. This begins with the pastor of the church. 
as we observe the Lord's table, when I preach the sermon before, make sure, it's my job to make sure we're following the biblical pattern of how we observe the table. I'm supposed to remind you that we're going to do this again in, in the new kingdom. I'm, I'm, I need to say that. And I need to call us all, me too, to examine ourselves and understand ourselves the way Christ understands us. Guilty sinners, but forgiven and cleansed. And then called to the table. And we're supposed to encourage each other by proclaiming. And we're supposed to apply the truth to us personally. It's my job to make sure that that happens. And I, I understand that. And that's a big job that I, I can't do in my own strength. My enemies are greater than me. My, 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 the Lord is to be my support as I try to do something that's too big for me. But it starts with me. But it translates to every one of you to actively listen for these things. Be looking for these truths, these ways. Hear the instruction of the Lord through 1 Corinthians 11, through Paul. And we need to individually make sure we're all doing these things. But for us all, that active participation, our minds and our hearts engaged. Don't let it be a ritual. Let it be something that shows us Christ. Follow those first three. Remember Christ. Apply the truth personally. Know that you're proclaiming the Lord's death to each other. Understand the benefit others get from seeing you partake of the elements. That that's a reality. Regular preparation. As I understand it, we, we did it in, up in West Virginia. The week before communion, communion, we'd have a week of preparation. Get ready Prep our hearts. Warm the oven. I, I, I'm trying to remember what I... Oh, I did some uh, 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 garlic bread uh, for dinner. Um, the other, I had to warm the oven first. I had to get, get it ready to receive the garlic bread, to toast it. So warm your hearts the week before the table. Get ready. Be, be ready to go. Uh, if you go to the gym, you stretch out before you begin your full exercise. Stretch your spiritual tendons and muscles in the week before. Do that regular press preparation. Eager participation. Anticipate. Pray, Lord, I'm, I'm observing your table this Sunday. Show me you. Open my eyes to something I didn't see before about you. Beg your God. Beg the Spirit to apply the word to our hearts that we see Christ in a new and living way. Not, you know, not ethereal self-revelation, but that he opened the scriptures to us in ways that we didn't see before and we see Christ and anticipate, man, I can't wait till I get to do this with Christ. I can't wait till heaven where I'm going to sit with him and he's going to explain to me what a broken body means and what the blood on my behalf, what it cleansed. And so, one of the best ways I can summarize this is to have a mindset. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Today's good. I'm ready. 
now. If you're not busy, Lord, come now. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So be it, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your table. Thank you for the richness of, of truth that is here. Lord, help us to have these kind of benefits. Help us to understand what happened in the disciples' eyes as, as their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. And uh, Lord, open, the, open our eyes. You have unto salvation. Open our eyes unto your glory in Christ's beauty as we worship him uh, both here and for all eternity. And so, Father, uh, you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 703, that God has loved us in a perfect way. Number 703, verses 1, 3.